they went to Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, he entered the synagogue and taught. They were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. Come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed. And they kept on asking one another, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. At once his fame began to spread throughout the, the surrounding region of Galilee. As many of you know, the Uniting Church, along with most of the mainline denominations and lots of other church groups, follow the lectionary, the three-year cycle of how we read the scriptures. And in each of the three years, a gospel is kind of central. One particular gospel is central. And so this year, which began obviously in Advent, that's the beginning of the church year, this year is the year of Mark. So we're dealing a lot with the Gospel of Mark. And so today's um, sermon is probably a little more lecture-like than, than we might want. But, but if we don't get some sort of understanding of what we're dealing with here, we don't know what we're doing. If you read a passage of Shakespeare without anybody cluing you into the fact that it wasn't written last week, you wonder, what's going on? Why does it sound like this? Well, because we know it was written when it was written, and, we, we, and with a good instructor, we get a few little ideas of what was going on in the play, and suddenly it begins to make some sense to us, and we begin to enjoy the language rather than be kind of put off by it. Well, I think the Bible obviously is the same. It's a much older set of documents. The Gospel of Mark particularly is an interesting document because for the early part of the church's life, when the canon was decided in the second and third centuries, Mark's Gospel was seen as sort of only just making it. It's not as good as the other Gospels, Matthew, Luke and John. It's a bit slapdash, as it was understood. It's very short. What's really a problem is that it's written in ordinary, everyday Greek, rather than the important, proper Greek you're supposed to use if you're going to make an, write an important document. And it repeats itself over and over again. So the word immediately is used all the way through the gospel as if it's sort of done by someone who just doesn't really know how to use enough English and so just uses the same word over and over again. It, in fact, it's used 41 times out of the 58 times it's used in the, in the gospels and, and, and acts. So the majority of them are... And, and then, even more disturbing, it's got this ending. So they went out, fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. 
It's such a shocking ending that nobody liked it, so people wrote extra endings. In one of them, possibly in the 4th century, one of them maybe in about the 8th century. And you can read them yourself because most Bibles include them. But when you read them, they just don't sound like the rest of the book. They're obviously not. You don't need to be a Bible scholar to know, ah, these are are people just trying to tidy this thing up. So Mark has been a difficult book. But in the late 19th century and then into the 20th century, people began to look at it differently and realise that it's actually a tightly woven, cleverly written piece of work. It uses all kinds of uh, literary and rhetorical tricks, if you like, in the best sense of the word, uh, that uses them to hook people in. A number of scholars think that maybe the gospel that we've got written down was originally performed village to village by by an actor, not unlike Shakespeare was for a while. And it's, it's got that kind of raciness about it. And it has all kinds of tricks in it. One of them is obvious in our text here. It's called the Markian Sandwich. It's a beautiful name for it, especially if you're hungry. See, this is the text that we've just read. What happens is there's some narrative, then there's a story, an event, and then more narrative. And the event in the middle, the story, the meat of the sandwich, if you like, proves or underlines or... amplifies the statements being made. So Mark introduces Jesus as one who speaks with authority, teaches with authority. How do we know that? Well, we know it because of the story in the middle. He has power over the spirit world. And then it goes on to the narrative again. And this comes the way all the way through Mark's Gospel. There's lots of these sorts of tricks. The other one, There's lots of them. The other one is what I tend to... There's lots of language for this, but the best way I understand it is the reflection model within Mark. And it's the idea that there's a central element in Mark's Gospel, and if you read this week's The Clayton article, I mentioned the verse. It's the verse where Jesus asked Peter, having asked the disciples who people are saying that he is, he says to Peter, who do you say that I am? And... Most scholars recognise that as a middle point. There's lots of other middle points you can find too, but that is one, middle point. And so you can get a pattern that reflects backwards and forwards through the Gospel. And this is why I use the Kandinsky painting, because it's kind of like concentric circles moving out. And at each point on a circle, it reflects back to the other side of the circle, just like you looking in the mirror reflects back. And when you look in the mirror and you realise how pretty gorgeous you look. It helps you, right? Depends how early in the morning you do it, but um, you know, you look in the mirror and you get some, uh, you, you, you can inform yourself in a way that you can't do when you're not looking. And this is what this does. Here's a model. There's heaps of these. Begins, the whole gospel begins with John the Baptist in wild clothing announcing Jesus. And it ends with a young man in fine white linen announcing the resurrected Jesus. Wow, what a cool pattern. There's the baptism of Jesus, which is a symbolic death and resurrection, and then there's the actual death and resurrection of Jesus. They reflect each other. And if you read one, you can learn something about the other. He casts out a demon out of a man in a synagogue. Just the passage we've just read. And he casts the money changers out of the temple. Another reflection 
if you think about the two things, and then the, the, one of the central questions of who do you say that I am. It's a really interesting document. It's much more um, tightly woven, much more intricate, much cleverer than we used to think it was. Let's have a go at the text that we've got to have a look at some of these possibilities. Jesus is the one with authority in the first half. The reflection, what's authority in the second half? Well, it's Pilate, isn't it? And the Jewish leaders. Jesus is the one with authority in the first half. At the end of the gospel, the authority is Pilate. That's where all the power is. The demon in the first half asks, have you come to destroy us? In the second half, who gets destroyed? Jesus and the disciples. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In the second half, Pilate has no idea who Jesus is. And he asks him, are you the King of the Jews? And Jesus answers a very ambivalent way by saying, so you say, or you say, or you say so. It's different. We don't really know what it means. And then back to the first half, Jesus rebukes the demon, the spirit, saying, come out of him, be silent, be silent, come out of him. Who's silent at the end of the gospel? Jesus, isn't it? Jesus, before Pilate, doesn't speak anymore after the word we, we, he said, you say so. Pilate speaks to him again and he doesn't answer. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him in the first half, in our little story. Who cries out in a loud voice at the end of the gospel? Jesus, on the cross, according to Mark's gospel. There's this reflection backwards and forwards. And it's strange because in the first half, Jesus has the authority. That's what we understand. That's the way we understand the gospel to work. He commands the evil spirit and it comes out. He speaks. People are astonished by him. But then the second half, it's completely different. In fact, that last verse that I read before, that they he fled because they, were, they had terror and amazement, they were amazed in the first reading. They're amazed about what Jesus said and did. And here they're amazed because they were afraid in terror. What on earth is going on? How do these two things reflect each other in this way? And we could go on and on and on with these reflections. First half, second half, reflecting over on each other. Well, some of it is important to know is the background of, we, of what we know about Mark's Gospel. It was written either just before or just after the total destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, basically the destruction of the whole of the Jewish way of life in 70 AD by the soon-to-be Emperor Titus, at that point a general of Vespasian. They destroyed, after a fair bit of provocation, 
from the Jews, many of them from the Galilee region, constantly in revolt. Just before Jesus was born, there was a massive revolt in a town six kilometres away from Nazareth where he grew up. They destroyed the town and possibly, according to the historian Josephus, executed 2,000 men. Destroyed the town. In fact, the town was being rebuilt during the time that Jesus was alive and it's very likely that Jesus would have had to work there in order to get work as a carpenter or stonemason, depending the, the we think a carpenter, but the, uh, the translation isn't that clear. He may well have been a stonemason. And he most likely would have had to take the daily commute to Sepphoris, this little, this, this growing town, which was becoming what um, uh, Antipas, the Herod king, called the Jewel of Galilee. All of this was happening all the time. Around this time, Mark's Gospel was written. It could have been written in Galilee or it could have been written in Rome. They're the two contenders at the moment through all, with all the scholars. And there's massive cultural change going on. The land is being taken over by the rich and the powerful in Galilee. Galilee is the food basket of Palestine. It's where the best food is, was grown and still is. And you grow the good food there uh, on small family plots. But those f small family plots are being taken away and given to returning legionnaires who, who have been offered land. Um, they, uh, the, the people are being drawn out of the villages to work in the big towns like Jesus may well have done. The 1% was growing in wealth and the rest of the population was losing. This is happening all the time. The, the, uh, because of the growth of urban centres, not only Sepphoris but Tiberias and uh, Caesar Maritima, not far away on the coast, the people were being forced into monocropping, which we see all the time in agriculture today, making the, the, growing the crops that they could sell in the urban areas, hopefully to make enough money to pay their taxes, most of, most of which were about half their income. They were taxed about half their income by Rome and by Jerusalem. All this turmoil is happening. Mark is written to people who are suffering. Jesus is talking to people who are suffering. He had a message of hope and joy, but he also had a message of solidarity in pain and suffering and struggle. His message of hope and joy, later in Mark's Gospel, it says the people listened to him with delight with gladness. But Mark's community is suffering too some years later because of the rise of the Jewish and Roman elite in their towns and the loss of their culture. So Mark's gospel needs to be written to people who have heard the good news of joy and hope but whose lives are in ruins. So what story can you tell them? You can't give them the prosperity gospel that some in our culture do. All you need to do is pray and God will give you whatever you want. Look at the cars and the jets and the suits that I've got. It worked for me, it'll work for you. Now we know that that's rubbish. But we kind of, there's enough in the Bible that if you just cut out other bits, you could make us, and these, these preachers do, make a story that says this is what God wants. And if you don't get it, you're not praying hard enough or you're not living right. 
So Mark has to write a gospel that tells the truth of what life is like for the people around him, but also for Jesus, because this is what happened to Jesus. He suffered. He got done down unjustly, unfairly. He wasn't listened to by the people who were in power and in charge. The whole thing was broken down. So what do we do with it? Well, first of all, having all that background will help us think through Mark for the rest of the year as we get it, not, all, not every week, but most weeks. And we're not so sure, of course, about a, a tiered universe, which is the universe that Jesus and his contemporaries lived in. That is, that we're on one level and then there's the spirit level that actually really controls things. We're, we're not as keen on that as a way, as a world view. But we do know that we live disjointed and sometimes disappointing lives. That there are sort of forces within us that seem to drive us for the strangest reasons. That we seem to wake up at two o'clock in the morning worried about all kinds of things that in the middle of the day we wouldn't be so concerned about. We, there are subterranean moves in our bodies and in our minds that are not easy for us to deal with. I used to think that all you needed to do to be a good Christian was do the right thing. Don't drink, don't swear, don't go to the movies. Well, that, I think that one had passed by the time I was born. But, but you know, a bunch of those sort of things. And then everything would be fine. But inside, I, it didn't seem to affect me. And it took me a long time to realise that that had nothing to do with being a Christian. That being Christian was to have a deep and inner experience of the divine or of God. And then how you live comes out of that. It's a completely other way around. Even when things aren't good. Even when we suffer. Because an experience of God is not going to be an experience of life full of victory and joy and Learjets and fancy suits. Might be for a while. But even for those people, there's going to come the day when it's all done. And they have to face, like each of us, the end of our life in suffering. And we do that in companionship with everyone else, but at the same time by ourselves. And maybe the Gospel of Mark is the Gospel we can carry with us in the dark days and in those last moments. That God, present in the life of Jesus, telling the great story of the world and present in the life of Jesus right up until the very last moment and beyond in his life in suffering. God is there. All right, they've gone way too long and there's so much more but I thought it might be a good idea just to do some of that background stuff to help us deal with what is, remember, a very strange document written a long time ago, not to us because no one envisaged here we would be all these years later trying to gain sustenance from it.